Welcome to yet another episode of the Climate History Podcast. I'm Dagmar de Groot, Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University, Co-Director of the Climate History Network, and Director of HistoricalClimatology.com. This time, I'm delighted to be joined by one of our real superstar PhD candidates here at Georgetown, Robin Meller. Robin will ask me some questions about my new book, The Frigid Golden Age, uh, and then we'll talk about the discipline of environmental history, the things grad students can do to get jobs in environmental history, and the culture shock of moving from Canada to the United States. But first, a word about Robin. She's writing a trailblazing dissertation that comparatively examines the environmental history of uranium mining and milling in the United States, Canada, and the Soviet Union from 1945 to 1985. It explores the history of the environmental and health effects of uranium mining. How the three countries conceptualized the environment in relation to waging the Cold War, and the role of uranium itself in the history of its procurement. It's really innovative stuff. Robin recently published a fascinating book chapter, A Comparative Case Study of Uranium Mine and Mill Tailings Regulation in Canada, and the United States, in a groundbreaking new book called Mining North America, an Environmental History Since 1522. In fall 2017, Robin designed and taught a course, The Global Environmental History of the Cold War. I was lucky enough to sit in on one of the classes, which was fantastic. Her students ultimately produced a map of the environmental effects of the Cold War, which you can find in the blog at georgetownenvironmentalhistory.org. Robin is a frequent contributor to the Network in Canadian History and Environment blog. Um, so you can go to the Niche website and look up uh, Robin Meller. And also, she's the New Scholars representative for uh, Niche. She's also the editor of our Georgetown Environmental History website, which is, again, georgetownenvironmentalhistory.org. Org. Robin's research has been supported by major awards from the American Society for Environmental History, ASCH, the Social Science Research Council, SSRC, and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, also called SHRC, which we go on to mention later in this episode. So I'm, I'm really grateful to Robin for organizing this interview, taking some time out of her busy schedule. Let's get started. Robin, and I am here today with Dagmar de Groot, and we will be talking about his new book that comes out February 8th called The Frigid Golden Age, Climate Change, The Little Ice Age, and the Dutch Republic, 1560 to 1720. Hi, Dagmar. Hi, Robin. Thanks for chatting with me. Um, so to begin, why don't you tell me about how you came to this project? That's a good question. So um, several years ago, many years ago now actually, probably about a decade ago, I was in a bus and I was traveling from the city of Hamilton to the city of Toronto, which, well, we're both Canadians, so we know both cities well, but these are cities in southern Ontario. Um, and I was stuck in traffic and I decided to uh, break out a book um, on the emergence of agriculture uh, in prehistory. 
And the book suggested that there might be a connection to climate change. And just as I was reading this, I was getting pretty close to Toronto, and the sun was, the setting sun was hitting the towers of Toronto, and it just all sort of glowed red, like they were on fire. And it was just like, to my mind, reading about climate change and human history, it was like, that's a vision of the future, and I'm reading about the past. And so maybe I can write about climate change and how it has impacted people in the past to um, find stories that may help us address the future. These were kind of thoughts that floated in my head. And I was really excited, actually, because I thought I had invented a new field. Um, and I continued thinking that, believe it or not, for several months <laughs> until I decided I would make that a PhD project. Um, and, uh, and then I realized there was a whole big scholarship about this stuff already. Um, so I was a little deflated. But as I started digging more into these issues, I thought, well, maybe I could examine the Dutch experience uh, with a period of climatic cooling called the Little Ice Age. And I realized that this cooling coincided exactly with the golden age of the Dutch Republic, uh, which we still remember from paintings by Rembrandt or Vermeer, um, but was really a, an era of population growth and economic growth and uh, cultural dynamism in what we now call the Netherlands. Um, and I just found like, well, this could be an opportunity to talk about a society that seemed to prosper either because of or in spite of climate change. And so that's how the book sort of uh, took form, and I think it's really the first book that deals with adaptation and what we call resilience uh, in the face of climate change, or at least past climate change. I actually want to ask you a little bit more about this topic of resilience, because it's something that comes up in your book. Mm. So how do you think about resilience? How do you define resilience? What does it look like for you and in your well, resilience is often defined um, as the capacity to take less damage from devastating weather, uh, often devastating weather that becomes more frequent or more severe when a climate changes. So that's climate change resilience. It is sometimes distinguished from resistance, where resistance means you take less damage, but resilience means you bounce back more quickly. And so when I talk about the resilience of the Dutch Republic, I talk about a society that seemed to cope better with the otherwise disastrous impacts of weather for societies around Europe, weather that was then linked to climatic trends. Um, and, and, you know, so examples of that would be the Dutch were a highly commercial society. Large portions uh, of uh, Dutch citizens worked in trades, right? So, for example, the uh, trade with Asia, uh, the trade with the Baltic Sea, trade with the Americas, um, and these trades were affected very differently by climatic trends than subsistence agriculture. Most people in the rest of Europe worked in subsistence agriculture, so it's just a very different kind of relationship, and that it could be one definition of resilience. So that's interesting to me, in part because uh, when we talk about adaptation to global warming, a lot of that is building resilience, consciously building uh, resilience. Um, and a lot of that conversation is also about which societies will suffer more than other societies as climate changes now. And so one of the arguments I have in the book is that the Dutch may give us parables about, and, and that can inform how we might think about adapting in the future and building resilience uh, in our own societies in, in the future. So... 
let's go more into the main arguments of the book then. So you just talked about... I remember them. <laughs> um, but I'd like to hear more about what you're arguing and how you're contributing to uh, work that's been done on climate change and in other fields of history that you're speaking to. Yeah, sure. So the big argument of the book is that there was something about the Dutch Republic that was different um, from other societies around the early modern world, and that allowed the Republic to not only successfully endure climatic trends during the Little Ice Age, but actually exploit some of them, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, so the book is divided into three sections. Uh, one deals with commerce, the other deals with conflict, and the final one deals with culture. And these I, I view as kind of pillars of the Dutch Republic and, and crucial areas where the Republic differed from many other societies around the early modern world. Um, so when I look at commerce, I actually find that far from uh, undermining the ability of Dutch traders to move through their world, climate change often offered benefits. For example, it seems like uh, new wind patterns around the North Sea region and really the broader northern Atlantic Ocean may have actually sped up Dutch ships as they traveled to Asia. Um, and even uh, Damaging, otherwise damaging storms uh, uh, seem to have sped up ships because Dutch crews and Dutch ships seem to have weathered storms better uh, than crews and ships fielded by other maritime countries. Um, and, and even areas where you might think, well, you know, these kinds of weather might be damaging um, to commerce. For example, when uh, in cold winters there was plenty of ice in Dutch canals or um, uh, disastrous storms uh, in the Baltic Sea, the Dutch seemed to have adapted relatively successfully. Um, when there was a lot of ice, they invested in icebreakers, um, and the icebreakers actually took pieces of ice um, uh, and broke them into blocks that could then be sold in cellars. Um, when there was too much ice, they took to skates and still managed to get around okay. Um, Dutch merchants actually divided their goods between different chips and therefore were able to uh, minimize loss. And they actually stockpiled grains in the Republic itself, which could then be sold for profit when food shortages affected the rest of Europe. So there are all kinds of examples of people coping uh, relatively successfully with climate change in that commerce section. When we have to get to conflict, um, the relationship, relationships in some ways are kind of similar. So um, uh, the Dutch fought this really long war called the 80 Years War with the Spanish Empire. It was really a War of Independence, because the Dutch used to be part of the Spanish Empire. And again, you find the Dutch succeeding in part because of climate change. Um, there was a lot more rain um, during parts, the, some, some of the coldest parts of the Little Ice Age, and that actually benefited a Dutch strategy of deliberately flooding their countryside to ward off Spanish invasions and, and to break Spanish sieges um, of key cities. Um, Spanish sieges also were out in the winter, and of course the winter got a lot colder and that had a big impact on besieging armies. And then later in the 17th century, there were a series of naval wars that the Dutch fought against uh, first England and then France. And uh, a change in wind patterns that coincided with uh, a really cold stretch of the Little Ice Age actually gave Dutch fleets favorable winds when they sailed into battle. And that allowed them to claim something that's called the weather gauge, which really allows you to decide when you attack and how you attack and when you uh, retreat. 
So my argument is that a shift in wind patterns associated with the cooling trend um, may actually have benefited the Dutch in war and actually allowed them to win battles and wars that they might otherwise have lost. And then finally, I get to this culture section. And when I uh, um, start that section, I, I first try and figure out whether Dutch winter landscapes, um, some people may be familiar with these beautiful paintings of winter uh, that come from the Dutch Golden Age, whether they directly registered climate change. And I kind of end up on the fence. I, I, I argue that, well, it's kind of difficult to tie climate change to the creation of these paintings, but they still offer perspectives on how the Dutch might have thought about um, colder weather, which of course was influenced by climatic trends. And then I get into things like poetry and technology, and the technology stuff is kind of my favorite because I get into um, weird technologies like wagons that were designed sailing wagons that were actually designed to go really fast on the ice, um, but also things like different fire hoses and engines that were actually developed in response to urban fires that may have been worsened by periods of drought um, that can actually be tied to a period of warming between little ice age cold phases. So it's it's really complicated, but it's uh, it's fun stuff to write about. <laughs> I told you I would ramble, Robin. <laughs> So, um, to play devil's advocate a little bit, would some people read your book and then say, well, maybe climate change can be a good thing if this is actually beneficial to the Dutch? And how would you answer a question like that? Um, in a couple ways, actually. First, I would say that it's really important, probably should have talked about this before, it's really important to explain the size of the climate change that we're dealing with. So, uh, when it comes to the Little Ice Age, we're talking about an overall cooling of no more than one degree Celsius below late 20th century averages. And in really the cold, that's in really the coldest stretches of the Little Ice Age, which lasted for no more than a few decades. Now, of course, cooling had different manifestations from region to region. It affected precipitation patterns differently from region to region. But really what we're talking about is very moderate climate change. Um, and so I would say that, yeah, moderate climate changes can could and can have beneficial impacts for communities and societies. But even, uh, even then, if you look at the early modern world, the arguments often made that it had negative impacts, overall disastrous impacts for many societies. Jeffrey Parker's global crisis is only the best known example of scholarship that deals with those negative impacts. Um, and so, yeah, a minority of societies might actually prosper. Uh, one in particular, I'm arguing more than really just about any other, um, but this could still be and was still disastrous for most people in the early modern world. Um, and maybe that's where we are now as well. But if you look forward, right, if, if you look into the 21st century, most likely uh, we'll get up to three degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the 21st century, again, relative to those 21st century, uh, 20th century averages. And, uh, and that is just a completely different picture. So... Um, we will see if there are any successful societies, societies that manage to ward off um, some of the worst consequences of climate change uh, once we get to the year 2100. <laughs> I suspect there will be, but we will see. So you say in the book that prior to your intervention into this field, the Little Ice Age has been seen as a time of disaster and decline. Why has the example of the Dutch and their resilience and the way they benefited from the Little Ice Age been ignored? 
price dollar is at for this point? Well, the first thing I'll say is that my book is probably the first book-length study on the resilience of a society uh, in the Little Ice Age and possibly in the pre-global warming era. Now, that is the first book. <laughs> there have been articles uh, that have been written along these lines. Um, but the reason that these stories are often not told, I think, is because the absence of disaster is sometimes interpreted as an absence of any sort of influence by climate change on human history. Um, in part, maybe, because it's an awful lot easier <laughs> to connect climate change to the human past by looking at dis disasters and these kind of landmark events. Um, they are, as you can imagine, much more likely to be present in the archival record of different societies, um, or even um, in the uh, relics or runes left by different societies in ways that um, allow for uh, engaging narratives. Um, it's much easier to write about a disaster that has left some sort of record than the absence of a disaster, uh, than prosperity, um, or even just getting by. Um, also, it's much easier to look at weather extremes in the past than looking at trends in average weather. My book deals with both, I think, trends in, in average weather and extremes. And when we look at the social impact of extremes, often, again, you're dealing with disasters, but not always. And then finally, when we think about the future, it's so often that we're thinking about disasters and catastrophes, right? I mean, at least if you're an environmentalist, if you're doing environmental history, often uh, we think of the Anthropocene, as it's often called, right? This kind of modern era, as an era of looming disaster. Um, and so it's natural to look into the past for disasters as well that might help us to understand where we're going. But I would argue, actually, it's even more important to look for examples of resilience and societies and communities consciously or unconsciously adapting because it's, it's, it's them that we need to try and learn from. So to do this, I mean, you lay out a really interesting methodology in the book that you use. So can you talk about the methodology you use to understand what was going on in the Netherlands during this period by looking outside of these catastrophes? Yeah. Um, if I remember it, sure. Um, so yeah, so what I did, first thing I did actually was realize um, that if I was going to look at resilience and adaptation, um, and if I was going to really isolate the influence of climate change um, on the history of the Dutch Golden Age, um, I had to look at a relatively long time frame, at least a century which meant looking at not only the really cold years and decades of the coldest stretch of the Little Ice Age, but also at periods of modest warming. Um, and so I wanted to track what changed and what stayed the same in both cold and warmer parts of the Little Ice Age um, to really isolate the influence of climate change uh, on Dutch history. Um, so that was... Uh, number one. Number two, I try to find well-documented examples of the impacts of weather on discrete human activities. So weather is very short-term. It's uh, kind of what's happening in the atmosphere in the very short-term in a particular place. Um, so I try to find many discrete examples of that before I move to bigger relationships between 
climatic trends and human affairs on annual or, de or decade scale time scales. So first to find tons of really small relationships and then establish broader relationships. Um, and then also to find connections between weather and climate change, which are not always as straightforward as they may seem. So it's really about three steps. One, to find weather and human activities, that relationship. Two, to find climatic trends and human activities, that relationship. And then three, to find relationships between weather and climatic trends. I'm probably not explaining this very well, but, <laughs> but, um, but that was key. And, and also, actually, lastly, um, to really weigh the different probability of things and to acknowledge probability at every step along the way. Um, uh, that actually comes from, is inspired by the I IPCC reports, um, which are really all about different levels of probability. Um, and I hadn't, I, I thought that climate historians hadn't done that properly um, in the past, where it's kind of like, well, this probably happened, or, um, you know, just kind of making grand assumptions. But I wanted to say, well, you know, there's, I, I really wanted to distinguish between what was more and less likely in, in the book. And so I hope I did that. And how, when you were doing this, did you grapple with the issue of determinism, mm. climate determining what happened? Yeah. Um, that was a big part of it, what I just described, so kind of weighing different levels of probability. The other thing is I, I really tried to emphasize that climate change is one variable among many. Now, it's one that has been ignored when we're talking about the history of the Dutch Golden Age, but in all the histories that I write about, it was not necessarily the most important variable. So uh, those naval wars that I talked about is a, is a good example. So the wind patterns changing definitely, I think, was important. Um, but what was also important was the Dutch adapting the tactics and technology that the English used, um, and without which the wind patterns were kind of useless. Right? So you need to have the right ships and the right tactics, and you need to have the right people. Otherwise, uh, you really can't exploit um, climatic trends at all. And then even then, there were still instances where you know, uh, commanders, captains, decided not to exploit weather patterns that would have been advantageous to them. Um, so there's a, a lot of room for human agency as well. Um, and so, yeah, so what was key to me is just showing that this is a very important variable. It hasn't been looked at before, but it's far from the only one, and it's rarely the most important one. Okay. Um, another question that I have, because you just talked about the IPCC, which is the International... Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental. Panel on Climate Change. <laughs> so you work... Uh, you do a lot of interdisciplinary work. So how did you use that approach when writing this book? How did you um, how did you delve into these different fields? Of yeah. The biggest challenge is really trying to figure out the climate science more than anything else. Um, I guess I, I cross dif uh, disciplines a little bit when I'm dealing with example, cultural history, military history, different genres of the historical discipline. But the big thing was trying to figure out the climate science, because I'm not a scientist. Um, and the first step for me, and I think the first step for uh, many environmental historians, is getting to know the language of the scientific discipline or disciplines in which we work. Uh, in other words, building up a kind of scientific literacy so there's a whole bunch of different terms in climate science that I had to learn um, and a whole bunch of different mechanisms that I had to familiarize myself with. And that took a long time. 
Um, but beyond that, I had to to learn how to evaluate the scholarship, how to uh, weigh publications against one another, how to weigh methodologies uh, against one another. I had to uh, learn how scholarship in scientific disciplines is changing, how quickly it's changing uh, from discipline to discipline. Uh, one of my early discoveries was that climate science, uh, paleoclimatology, for example, um, can change dramatically in uh, the time uh, of just a few years. Um, historical scholarship can change, in general, much more slowly than that. So an article that's 10 or 15 years old can be entirely obsolete uh, in paleoclimatology, rarely the case in any sort of historical discipline. Um, I also had to know something about the sources um, that scientists use, uh, and eventually I figured I could even start working with some of the sources. I, I learned their strengths and weaknesses, what the textual sources uh, I usually work with um, could do to fill in some of those weaknesses, some, some of those holes. And so I was actually able to integrate the uh, paleoclimatological, the scientific um, sources with the historical textual sources um, that I was even more familiar with. Um, and to do all of this well, I learned that I had to really connect with specialists in other disciplines. Uh, one thing that helped is co-founding the Climate History Network. Uh, we have a lot of scientists who have become our members that I could reach out to, um, who got to know me. Um, also, going to scientific conferences, um, the one that helped the most is the Past Global Changes or Pages Open Science Meeting uh, in Goa, India, where I uh, met a lot of scientists that I still work with um, today. Um, so there were a lot of steps um, to this process, and it took a long time, but I hope that eventually I learned enough of the science uh, to write about it intelligently and to incorporate it within the history that I was um, trying to develop. Any other tips for historians on how to approach scientists and work with scientists? They're nice people most of the time. <laughs> you can just send them an email and they'll, and they'll respond pretty quickly. Um, you know, it's kind of like if, if a scientist contacts me, um, I'm usually pretty excited about that. And I'll usually tell them about how to think about relationships between, for example, past climate change uh, and human history. And uh, it goes the other way too, right? So if I contact a, science, a scientist, most of the time they're happy to share their research. They've given me databases that I can use or they've told me where to look for them. Um, they've given me graphs. I love graphs. <laughs> There's a lot in my work. Um, and they've told me how to construct those graphs. Um, and yeah, so they've just been really helpful. And it's, it's nice if you go to a conference, of course, you can sit down with people uh, and share a coffee with them or something. And uh, um, and really pick their brains. So, so yeah, I, I strongly encourage conference participation. Um, one more big issue that I think environmental historians always deal with with their writing, we talked about determinism, but how do you address declensionism mm. in your book? And that's the idea of everything being in decline. Mm -hmm. Do you touch on that at all? Oh yeah, the whole book is a response to dequestionism in some ways, um, because of course we don't see that uh, with the Dutch Golden Age. In fact, if 
anything, the social economic trends point in the opposite direction for much of the coldest stretch of the Little Ice Age. Um, and so this is actually an example of the dangers of, or it's a, it's a warning against the dangers of declensionism, I think, where we might expect the opposite kind of relationships. And in fact, when the Dutch Republic has been mentioned before in scholarship on climate history, it's been lumped in with everything else where the Dutch are suffering as well. But really, uh, there were some examples of that, but overall, uh, that, that wasn't the case. So we've got to be really careful with our assumptions, our declensionist assumptions in environmental history, and in particular with climate history. And again, the way around that, I think, is to pay attention to those particular relationships between weather and climate change uh, and human affairs uh, on different scales. Um, so not to be afraid to navigate through scales, um, to weigh different levels of probability and to look for relationships between environments and peoples, not only in the coldest and most extreme stretches of a particular climatic period, but also in what comes between them. Yeah, and so it's really about it's really about avoiding uh, assumptions that you might have when you start your work, I think, because that was certainly a big story with my work. Can you talk more about that? What assumptions you had going yeah, in that were Yeah, changed? sure. Well, I, I, you know, I thought, okay, so it's the coldest stretch of the Little Ice Age. Um, you know, societies around the world seem to be suffering. Um, and, and most likely we'll find the same thing with the Dutch because um, the Dutch Republic, much of it was in something, you know, a place that we call the Low Countries, um, which are actually, by the 16th century, below sea level. Um, in part because of human activity um, and colonization of peat bogs. Um, and so I was thinking, well, this area, this part of the world, should have been particularly sensitive to any sort of climatic change because anything that changes the sea level, uh, which we might expect would have happened uh, during uh, parts, or at least warmer parts of the Little Ice Age, might have overwhelmed them. And, and certainly anything that affected storminess might have overwhelmed um, low-lying parts of the low countries. So I thought, well, you know, maybe there's uh, there's a very direct and easy connection that I can sketch here about um, climatic trends and disasters. And that's really the opposite that I found. Overall, I found the Dutch, of course, benefited more. But maybe actually the most important thing that I found is that these relationships are really, really complicated um, and that there were many, many other variables involved. Um, and, so, um, and so it really ended up being kind of the opposite of what I expected. And to such an extent that I thought at one point that I was screwed. You know, when I was just starting my dissertation, I was like, I cannot find the, the relationships that I thought I would find. How am I going to write this thing? And I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I'll write the opposite dissertation. <laughs> so that's what I ended up doing. Um, and I think it ended up being a much better story. So what kind of research did you conduct to put this book together? Mm. Well, the first step of the, of the process was to figure out what the science was telling me. And I say science, it's really interdisciplinary research, what it was telling me about um, climatic trends in the Low Countries and in Northwestern Europe, uh, I guess ultimately in the Atlantic and the Arctic uh, regions. And that was really tough. At, at first, I thought I was seeing uh, one set of relationships because I was re relying on sources from the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I realized that the science had changed quite dramatically. So that actually, that whole process took longer than I expected. Um, and then I had to do ar archival research, of course, um, in the Low Countries, but actually also in England when I was dealing with the Anglo-Dutch Wars, for example. 
Um, and I ended up looking at an awful lot of ship logbooks, um, in part because they allowed me to reconstruct patterns of prevailing wind, which I uh, then associated with uh, cooling trends, but also because they gave me a lot of those relationships, really concrete relationships between weather events and short-term local human activities, which I needed to build that first step of my three-step process. Um, and um, so that was really interesting, actually. I really like going through those sources. Um, but then also, I was lucky because the Dutch archival system is super good, and uh, Dutch archives and libraries have actually published a lot of primary sources. And that was actually really valuable to me because I had to go through things really quickly. I had to go through a lot of material really fast in order to follow my methodology, which is one reason I think my methodology is useful, but not useful for every region. Okay. <laughs> you can't always... Uh, uh, follow all those steps, but luckily I could in the Dutch context. So I went through an awful lot of those sources as well. Um, and I even found some, actually a lot of online databases of Dutch ships um, and shipping times, the Sound Toll archives being one example, the Kleinwalk database is another, ArcDoc is yet another example. Um, and so I was able to make use of that as well. So it's a, many different kinds of sources, um, and hopefully all turned out. So... I actually want to go back to that bus ride where yeah. you chose this project, just in case there's any other graduate students or even undergraduates listening. What point were you at in your study when you made this decision? When did this idea come to you? And then you said you were kind of overwhelmed by the amount of work that had been done on climate. So how would you recommend new scholars coming to this topic approach it? Well... Yeah, so first of all, I was, uh, I think I was in the first month of my master's, which I did at McMaster University in Hamilton. Doing history? Doing, doing history, yeah, and not environmental history. I was doing uh, international relations, diplomatic history, and I was on my way to writing my major research project on relationships between the CIA and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Wow. So that was really, that was completely different. <laughs> And, um, but I was kind of guided by uh, the desire to do or, or to look at histories that could tell us something about the future or at least the, the pressing issues of the future as I saw them. And of course the present as well because this was not that long after the war in Afghanistan had started. Not that long after. Well, it's been going on for a long time, but anyway. Um, so yeah, I was, I was kind of informed by that. Um, and then I ended up... Um, applying for a PhD at York University to work with Richard Hoffman on uh, this kind of climate history of the Dutch Republic. And then also uh, I applied to do a PhD at McGill on Iraqi nationalisms and understandings of Islam in the early 20th century. So <laughs> very, very, I pursued very different uh, possibilities and the York one ultimately came through and uh, I'm, glad that, I'm glad that it did. Um, and then in terms of the advice that I would have for people um, when they try and sort out a topic, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm really the best <laughs> example <laughs> of what you should do. Um, but I guess one thing is to, um, to follow your passions, I, I suppose, and, and to, in my case, I guess it was to pursue what was interesting to me in the present. I think that's why uh, I've been relatively successful so far in terms of the scholarship that I've done because people seem to care about it. And so by all means, 
<laughs> do stuff that people seem to care about in the present. Well, you don't have to. You can be guided by simple curiosity as well, of course. But that's something that's worked out for me. Um, in my case, I, I didn't look at the scholarship before I started planning out where I would go with the project. Um, I don't know if that's best practice or not. <laughs> but uh, but maybe it is, you know, maybe... Um, you know, maybe you've got to try and work things out in your head before, before consulting the scholarship. I don't know. But I will say this about climate history, is that there's an awful lot that's still to be done, and really about pre-modern environmental history in general. Um, just with regards to climate history, there's so much to be done about regions other than uh, Europe and China, which are pretty heavily studied at this point, although I feel like my book still shows that there's new angles that you can take. Um, there's so much to be done on local stories, of climatic impacts. Uh, nobody's really looked at women's history and climate change or race um, and class, even to some extent, uh, and climate change in the past. Um, I still think a lot of climate histories are highly declensionist and um, I don't want to say simplistic, but uh, um, they don't really uh, work through different skills. I think the way that I might think is best to do. Um, histories that connect disease to climate change are kind of still in their infancy, I, I, I would say. Maybe The Great Transition is an example of a way forward. This is a new book by Bruce Campbell that I think is really interesting. Um, just a lot of stuff to look at, and that's just uh, with the Little Ice Age. Um, also, maritime uh, environmental histories. I think the environmental histories of the sea are still really uh, in their infancy. So, yeah, there's there's tons to look at, even when you're just looking at the Little Ice Age, and that doesn't take into account all the previous periods, which are still really, really understudied. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of room, and really the best thing to do if you're interested in this stuff and you're just kind of getting into your master's or even if you're an undergrad is to send emails to people who you know are doing this kind of research and ask them, hey, what do you find interesting right now? Um, because again, it's kind of the same as with contacting scientists. Most people are happy to answer those emails. Lots of topics, lots of inspiration yeah, tons. for upcoming scholars. Tons. Um, so, what do you think? I mean, climate change is obviously a big deal right now. There's mm -hmm. lots of uh, public discussions going on about it. It's an important issue in the present. Do you think that? historians have a role to play in these conversations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's what I argue in the book, in the conclusion of the book. Um, yeah, uh, I think they do. Um, and I think the role will vary from historian to historian. I don't think they need to necessarily play a role. Like if you're doing a history of climate change, you don't necessarily have to be an activist as well. Um, but I think... Too often, they have been ignored um, by, for example, the IPCC. It would be awfully nice if um, the reports of the IPCC had a little section on how people have dealt with climate change in the past. I think that would be really interesting. But of course, there really isn't uh, there isn't much uh, engagement with the historical community in that regard. Um, the biggest thing is, I think, that historians can often come up with. Um, multi-textured sort of nuanced uh, histories of uh, people responding in complex ways, ways to environmental changes and in ways that maybe suggests that projections of um, climate's impacts in the future can be a little bit simplistic or determinist. 
Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that we're facing severe climate changes. Um, obviously, uh, uh, warming of three degrees Celsius will have more direct impacts, I think, um, on societies than the more modest climate changes of the recorded past. Um, but still, when we try and project the social impacts of climate changes, we have to take into account um, relationships between different stakeholders, um, social changes that may be unanticipated right now, and more broadly, the nonlinear nature of um, well, the development of the human story. And so I think historians can play an important role in nuancing projections of a warmer future. So we've talked a lot about your history, but what about the projections <laughs> for your future? What's coming up next? That was a very smooth segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm working on a couple of different book projects right now. Um, one is actually an environmental history of outer space. Uh, it's called, tentatively, called Civilization and the Cosmos. And it's with Harvard University Press and, and Viking UK. Um, and, um, and that book is really all about how environmental changes across the solar system have influenced our past, the human past, over the past five centuries or so, and then also about how human beings have started to transform either in their minds or really in, in practice uh, environments across space um, in the 20th century and now in the 21st century as well. And there's even a chapter that will look forward in, into the future. Um, so I'm pretty excited to be writing that. Um, then I'm also working on a couple different uh, book projects. One of them is about um, societies that seem to prosper in periods of abrupt climate change in the past. So I, it's going beyond the Dutch example and looking now at many different, actually, communities as well and societies that seem to thrive um, during these really, really abrupt periods of climate change. So the very, very coldest decades of the Little Ice Age. Maybe I'll get into a, another cold period called the Late Antique Little Ice Age in the 6th century CE. And maybe I'll get into some stories from uh, what we already have of the, global, of the history of global warming as well. Um, so that is tentatively entitled Coping with Climate Change. And then I might have another book in the works as well, but I'm not sure where that's going yet. <laughs> so I won't describe that. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a number of different book projects and certainly enough to keep me busy. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, I have a Canadian content Question. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. As a Canadian, I have to ask. Um, so you you received all of your education, higher education in Canada, correct? Mm -hmm. And then you have just recently come to Georgetown in the United States about three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> what has it been like? to switch from Canada to the U.S.? Are there any major differences? Is there anything um, that stands out to you in this system versus Canada? Well, maybe we could open this up a little bit because you obviously have the same experience, um, although you haven't done all your education in Canada, of yeah. course. Um, yeah, so, uh, okay, so uh, what has popped out at me? Well, the first is that, of course, in Canada, all our universities are fairly similar, I would say, compared to the ones in the United States. You know, McMaster University, where I did my undergrad and my master's, really not that different from York University, which is really not that different from the University of Western Ontario, where I did my 
doctrine. Maybe I'm offending some people now. <laughs> well, they're all good schools. Um, here at Georgetown, you get a very different experience, both as faculty and as a student, as you would get in many, many other universities in the United States. Uh, the, the difference is just so huge. I'm not talking about you know, necessarily got a much, much better education at Georgetown than anywhere else. Um, but there are resources here that we have, of course, that you wouldn't have in a different place. Um, and students come here who are also often, you know, quite privileged, or at least come from different backgrounds often uh, than at other universities. And, and so to see that, I mean, it's kind of like, as a Canadian, it's probably not surprising to you, just the stratification of things here in the United States um, presents a kind of culture shock. Um, there's also really practical things like in Canada, if you want a grant, you apply to usually just one organization. SHRC is the acronym. Or NSERC, you know, if you're doing interdisciplinary work or work with scientists. Um, SHRC is the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Robin won a bunch of big awards through SHRC. Um, uh, I won an award through SHRC as well. And they really helped, helped me out. And I know they've helped you out as well. Um, here... <laughs> there's dozens of organizations that you can apply to and it really gets a little overwhelming um, and, and that applies to just about any aspect of society how do you get your health care? well there's tons of options right? Mm -hmm. um, when you get in a grocery store there's tons even more options than in Canada it just goes on and on and on then um, I read articles about how that rather than expanding your freedom it actually in some ways limits your freedom because it, it keeps you from focusing on the things that you really want to focus on Conversely, it does give you more opportunities at times. So it's kind of, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but I would say overall, we can talk about this forever, but I would say overall, it's been more of a culture shock than I expected. The political election might have had something to do with that as, <laughs> as well. Um, but I've actually really enjoyed it. I've, I've really enjoyed being at Georgetown. Um, I don't know, Robin, what, what have been your experiences? Well, I've been here a little longer, mm -hmm. um, so I was here before, for a long time before the current election, which I think influences things, but I've been in the United States now for six and a half years, wow. and I didn't do any of my graduate work in Canada, so there's a lot of things in terms of a difference in graduate work I cannot speak to. Um, I also went to Queen's University, where everyone would probably disagree that we're equal to other universities. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but they are. But they are. <laughs> um, but in terms of culture shock, and I guess one thing is that I think in at least the university I went to was a very liberal bastion of ideas, and mm. I think here it's not assumed necessarily in a university environment that everyone is thinking along those lines. I'm sure not everyone was at Queen's University either, but <laughs> it was much more liberal, I think, than it is at universities across the United States. Um, that's one of And yet we're accused of being um, liberal strongholds, of course. Yes, we are. <laughs> so they should see some universities in <laughs> Canada. Um, but that's one of the biggest things I noticed. And another thing is that for me, as someone who doesn't have U.S. citizenship as a graduate student here, there's a lot of 
funding opportunities and job opportunities that I cannot take advantage of mm. necessarily. So that's something to think about all the, I don't know, all tech jobs mm. in the United States are usually for American citizens. Yeah. And a lot of the grants are as well. But you can still um, apply to things like SHRC from the United States as long as you are a Canadian. Yeah, and that's key. Um, and a lot of people at Georgetown have. Uh, I think uh, several of our graduate students uh, in, in recent years have been awarded SHRCs. Um, so that is at least something. <laughs> I guess also you get, I mean, I because I've never um, done graduate work in Canada, I'm not sure, but the funding here is pretty complete. Yes. Yes, and of course that does vary because if you come to Georgetown uh, in environmental history, you get a certain fellowship package that's very favorable um, versus what you would get in Canada. That's true. You get you get a lot less at many Canadian institutions. Yeah. Um, Tuition is far more expensive mm. here, but usually just a bit. <laughs> usually, graduate students in the PhD program don't have to pay for it, and that's one of the reasons I applied to the United. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, just to, to think about the faculty experience, too, I, I guess one of the things I was thinking about, and, and maybe this actually applies for graduate work as well, is that there's not one United States. Well, I mean, that's kind of a, how to sum up America for, uh, for Canadians in, in general. There's, there's not one U.S. So there's a, uh, an academia of elite institutions in the United States, there's an academia of state institutions. There's an academia of colleges. I mean, it's just, it, it really varies um, tremendously, I think. Um, being at Georgetown definitely has its advantages um, over many Canadian institutions, I think. Again, in terms of the resources, human and material that you can call upon. Um, but that's not the typical experience in the United States. Um, and just in general, I think, I have a great deal of respect for Canadian academia, in part because uh, Canadian academia lowers those uh, differences uh, from institution to institution. So, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for Canadians who want to apply to academic jobs in the United States? Well, you got to do it. Um, that's the first thing, right? I think a lot of people... Um, who are on the job or who are approaching the job market think, well, you know, I want to stay in Canada. So again, you know, thinking specifically about Canadians, I, I want to stay in Canada. Um, but that's not, I mean, if you want to find academic work, as you know, um, there are so few jobs every year in any particular field that you really do have to keep your mind open. Um, and, and so, yeah, you should definitely apply, I think, for American jobs. It's really been wonderful for me. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it, so I strongly advocate doing that. Um, the other thing is, uh, and I think you and I, we might have talked about this in the past, um, is, is that it's just really important to make yourself more than a Canadian specialist, I think, um, if you're a Canadian graduate student. So even if you're analyzing Canadian topics, you can do that in a way that has significance and appeal outside of Canada. Um, and that might make you a competitive candidate for an American job. Or you can't. And then that would make you, of course, only competitive for Canadian jobs. 
Um, so I, I really do think you have to start thinking along those lines at a very early stage in a PhD, ideally. Um, and then, frankly, also to think along entrepreneurial lines at a pretty early stage to think about, well, what can I do, for example, with online organizing? Um, uh, what void can I fill in my field that doesn't necessarily have to do with new publications, but maybe I can take, uh, maybe I can create a resource that hasn't existed before. Just ways of making yourself more interesting for people outside of your Canadian circles, I think, uh, and to broaden your international appeal, and actually also contacting uh, scholars. You know, sending those emails that we talked about, I think, is a really good thing to do as well. So there's a lot of things you can do, but it really comes down to making yourself attractive to the broadest circles possible. And, and you know, again, this is an area where probably you've done as much thinking as I have. So what do you think? Well, I've always had, I've always considered applying to U.S. jobs, and um, because my topic actually is Canadian history and U.S. history and Soviet history, mm. um, I am able to study Canada, but in a way where I think about it comparatively and internationally. So um, I think that helps because I can still study for all the scholars out there who still want to look at Canada. There are ways to look at it, and we have more people in the department here who look at Canada um, on an international or a global transnational uh, scale. Mm. But I also think, for me, it's been the opposite way. So working at a U.S. institution, I have tried to reach out in different ways to connect yeah. with the Canadian environmental history community. And I think they do have a very good online presence to plug into, which maybe there's not the same kind of community in the United States. And yeah, definitely not. Easily plug into as a, a Canadian scholar, but there are a lot of ways to engage, like you said, the international environmental history community. There's people doing work um, all over the world right now. There's conferences and workshops all over the world. So I think to start meeting, even to just start, if you, you are still just working on Canadian environmental history, to start talking to people who aren't working on it and thinking about how your project can connect to them. Even if you've started down that road, you can even, you know, reach out and connect to those communities. Definitely. I completely agree. Okay. Now we've talked about the United States and Canada and we haven't even brought up Trump, <laughs> or at least not much. And <laughs> and we didn't we didn't uh, bring up Trudeau or his socks um, or a trade war. So I think we can probably just end it there. Um, again, thanks so much, Robin, for doing this interview with me. Um, thanks, as usual, to everyone for listening. Uh, until next time. <laughs>